Shit Platypus Says, episode 20. It was a short-lived thing. Still, I'm confused by what it means, but, um, you know. It's sort of a fuck you against the people that are older and supposed to know better than you. But I guess it's kind of an angry, like, Greta Thornburn response to the adults that should know better and like we kids mm-hmm. shouldn't be doing this out here this kind of voice i think it was yep. part of it but what are the kids doing now that's better than the adults i don't know but their culture is certain is kind of like emerging now i would say zuma gen z culture is coming onto the scene gen z lots um, of drugs or at least mm-hmm. that's um that's what euphoria would have you think yeah euphoria yeah exactly it's like high schoolers doing hard hard drugs and kind of continuing something that i guess started when i was in high school which is the experimental drugs somewhat disregard for your own well-being mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i guess that now that's the thing to do like the kids are really into these kind of dangerous um experimental drugs that you can just get your hands on through the dark web and stuff like this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess the that experience of um, drug taking is coming up in the music of like Travis Scott, kind of wallowing in that experience. Yeah, and I mean the central character in Euphoria is uh, a kid who's having problems with with drugs early on in her life. Yeah, Rue. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we should say the the show is an HBO show. If you've not heard of it, and. It's caused some controversy because it's like high schoolers and they're all supposed to be, or most of them are supposed to be under 18 and there's a lot of nudity in the show um, and drug taking. And so these are young actors. There's also a trans actor involved. Well, I've, I've certainly heard like through through friends saying uh, they know Zoomers that are watching it and they identify with the show or they yeah. feel an affinity to the, to the characters in the show. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of there's so there's like depression that's like a big major theme but it's a kind of like goth cool because they're having a good time they're really depressed people but they find people who are as sad as they are or as sort of lost as they are and they end up having these fabulous experiences together Right, which the show captures in its like bizarre editing. Some of the editing reminds me of Quentin Tarantino actually like moving fast through someone's like drug experience. But this is where I just couldn't get into it. I couldn't get into although there are the moments of where they kind of come together through their lived experiences as teenagers in the show. I just couldn't I was just I kinda just didn't care. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't get into it. I think we were um, before we were recording, we were discussing that follows the story of this one girl uh, who, outside the show, she's Barbie Ferreira, right? She kind of goes through this experience where she's been, where she's, she, as a kid, she's like put on a lot of weight. And then at school, this, this kind of sucks or she's unpopular or whatever. And then she finds a way um, through the internet to, uh, the internet becomes an outlet for her. And she starts recording like sexy videos, soft porn videos. Um, and her story kind of has this brief development through it where she, where this starts to become um, interesting or exciting. Uh, and she starts to become something, uh, become something else that is, um, that is bringing her like happiness, I guess, or, or confidence in herself. Yeah. And then a lot of the other characters for me were just kind of like uh, happy in their, um depressive state yeah the girl's name is cat in the show and uh i think it could have been gimmicky but i think it was done well because it puts her a bit in danger like the way that she's finding her confidence is by finding these men who want to jerk off to her on cam so she like finds a clientele of men who are um willing to pay willing (laughs) to pay and also just like want to be dominated and so Mm. she finds this strength that she didn't know that she had but as the show progresses, it gets creepy, actually, and it's questionable whether or not she's putting herself in danger. And so there's a kind of dark side to it. Um, but I think the show, it does a really good job at portraying the darkness of life at a young age, like how scary things can get. But Sorry, I've only watched halfway up the, the, through the show, as you can tell. But the, the trans character, again, is it shows her kind of um, like history before, and she's being taken to like a correctional facility. Um and it has tough childhood and kind of 
Um, and then again, she kind of becomes who she wants to be, like, um, or is becoming who she wants to be, which is all well and good. Um, I just feel like, yeah, like the the show is dark, and and maybe that darkness kind of reflects a more general societal sensibility about the about what's possible. Or um, yeah, you called it cynical earlier when we were talking, mm-hmm. and I was trying to figure out what you meant by that. I think it kind of it. Um, although there are these different stories that of development that happen uh, among some of the characters, it still shows like a a cynicism to towards what's possible. Um, and so the kind of lighter moments or the happy moments in the show are kind of between between character a, a character dynamic where everything is shit, but they're kind of they find happiness between themselves, uh, and they kind of and it, it's kind of like reveling in despair or something. It's not. I mean, I I've been thinking of other examples of pop culture, like Rihanna in um a few years ago at her high point, like um and the songs were like. Uh, it's more upbeat even then it's like we found love in a hopeless place or shine bright like a diamond we are diamonds this kind of thing there's like there's this kind of like positivity there which is more utopian than um than something like euphoria or travis scott you know though i guess there's also a different kind of positivity that became popular concurrent with rihanna is like the growth of beyonce as like the positive queen bee some kind of millennial optimism Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I personally find that quite empty. Well, that was like the the Super Bowl thing where she kind of used the the women styled as Black Panthers behind her to to make this kind of like empty gesture. Yeah. um, About empowerment. Like that optimism, the aesthetic of utopian possibility, the army of change marching into. It's almost a Coca-Cola ad sort of, you know, reaffirming society. I... I just think that the rebellion against the quote-unquote utopic doesn't have to be, um, I don't know, it doesn't have to be so self-defeating. Maybe utopian is the wrong word, um, but there's there's something, I just feel like I'm registering something very cynical about the kind of Zuma culture or what the Zoomers are affiliating with. There's something about it that is... Um, that is specific and I guess the question is why the necessary form of appearance or why the why why this kind of outlook one of the shows that gets brought up in the show is my so-called life yes which was part of the slacker 90s vibe um and the show does have that kind of you know these kids like you never see them do homework like they're like they're in school like insofar as they're just like around each other in this big building together um it's not about like learning or anything so i guess there's this disregard for knowledge they distrust the wisdom of their time or something Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they're trying to find some truth elsewhere they're trying to find truth in like each other or at its you know most psychedelic or trying to find truth in like this other drugs right this like deep unconscious or something new experiences Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah they've retreated into the self for some kind of comfort but they don't find comfort Mm -hmm. um so it's like pathos and yeah not finding a way out of that pathos yeah i agree you're totally right though i mean the thing okay so the problems with the show there is like a lot of millennial orthodoxy still in the show just quickly, how would you explain the millennial um, orthodoxy on gender? Oh, the men are pathological and angry, um, uh-huh. and and women women's sexuality. I mean, there is this empowerment happening, uh-huh. this uh, like narrative of female empowerment, right? Everyone is being female boss. Yeah, the female boss. Yeah, like the big the boss bitch or whatever, uh-huh. and they're all trying to find their ways into that image somehow and. And then there's trans, transsexuality or transness. And um, I think, I don't know, but, but the narrative of Jules is, is not great. She gets put in like a mental institution when she's young. Her parents can't deal with her sexuality. So the authorities like pathologize her. Nothing yeah. is really told in terms of how she comes to terms with her transness. It's just like she looks herself in the mirror. She's like, I feel wrong. I've just been really angry. And then, then it tells you that she's transitioned. There's no texture to that. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a little bit 
surface level, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But but I don't know. It's weird. I'm I'm actually I'm kind of drawn to the show for some reason. I I don't know. Maybe it's because there is a kind of I don't know, like um, a dark mood about the show. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe is an antidote to a certain empty promises of millennial generation mm-hmm. that, you know, when you see photographs of your colleagues who are supposed to be fighting for socialism next to Bernie Sanders wearing a tie and a suit, you know, who are like auditioning for the next generation of politicians in the Democratic Party. Yeah, you do feel like it's kind of fucking hopeless, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, I I think we're seeing um we're seeing culturally a cynicism um set in from from mm. what I've from what I've been listening to mm. and watching. I guess it's kind of difficult because it's just it's just kind of just happening now or just over the past few years that these things have been coming like Billie Eilish or whatever these these kind of figures have been coming onto the scene, um and the millennials are are old. Um, yeah, Billie Eilish. I saw her on SNL, and she actually did her second song on the show. Was a very heartfelt, like very personal, like slow romantic song. It was like a cappella, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, beneath this sort of cynicism and kind of hardened, cool goth athleisure aesthetic, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm sort of tenderness, a kind of fragility and vulnerability, like the main character, like the like Rue. Like she's she's kind of tough, but there's this sort of extreme sensitivity actually, extreme vulnerability. Um mm-hmm. but so I don't know, maybe you know it's not just a one note. It maybe it's not just cynicism. You're right, it's difficult to talk about it. It's the beginning of this. I just wouldn't um you know, like I almost feel like I don't know, around our circles when someone says cynicism, it becomes a pejorative for like not giving a fuck. Um, and so I kind of want to rescue it. I think it's too early to tell. I don't know. Uh, I don't want, I don't want to say, I don't want to say that, you know, (laughs) I guess that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's, this is why I feel kind of like ambivalent about this stuff. But, um, yeah, I think it's too early to, to tell. Yeah. Happy Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Have a great new year. Hello and welcome to another installment of Shit Platypus Says, your one-stop shop for the symptomology, necrology, and epidemiology of the left. I'm your host, Pamela Nogales, and on this episode, my co-host Sophia Friedman interviews Peter Tatchell, a human rights advocate and veteran activist of the LGBTQ rights movement, on his experience on the left, as well as his thoughts on Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. On the second half of the podcast, I'm joined by London members Efrain, Rory, Dominic, and fellow traveler Rebecca at the London School of Economics, where we discuss the latest on Brexit and the upcoming general election, as well as what it means to vote Labour today. Platypus has its annual international convention coming up in Chicago on April 3rd through the 5th, 2020. The theme for the convention is socialism in the 21st century. We welcome all ideas for panels. If you have a panel to pitch, do send us your ideas to says at gmail.com. And if you're into the podcast, you should share it and even write us a review. We would welcome it. here with Peter Tatchell, a British human rights campaigner and is best known for his work with LGBT social movements. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners um, on your own political history? I'm Peter Tatchell. I've been a human rights advocate and political activist for over 50 years. Much of my work is around LGBT plus human rights. At least half of it is on other issues of democracy and human rights, equality, diversity, and social justice. I first got involved in activism and human rights work way back in 1967 at the age of 15 when I was still at school. My first big campaign was against the death penalty, so that prompted my involvement in campaigns for Aboriginal Indigenous rights, mm-hmm. then against Australia's involvement alongside the United States in the Vietnam War. How did you become involved in LGBT plus activism? But I'd already been campaigning for more than two years 
before I realised I was gay. And that was at the age of 17 in 1969. I didn't have any template to work with because in my hometown of Melbourne, Australia, there were no LGBT plus organisations, not even any helplines or support groups. So I looked to the Black Civil Rights Movement in America as a template for LGBT activism. So I know you run the Peter Tatchell Foundation, but have you been involved in any leftist organisations or groups during your coming um, into political maturity? My first ever political awareness was back in 1963. I heard about the bombing of a black church in Birmingham, Alabama, where four young girls about my own age were murdered by white racists. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw African-Americans having a legitimate fight to overcome entrenched racism. That led on to a a broader, wider critique of society. And gradually and slowly, I came to the view that all these different connected bits of oppression were not in isolation. They were part and parcel of a much bigger, broader, comprehensive social system. And that therefore, the way to resolve all these issues was through a fundamental reshaping of society. So I was never interested in tinkering and reforming the system. I wanted to see a a fundamental social transformation. You know, I allied very quickly with the left, but not with the Labour-type left, more with the radical revolutionary left. Although I never joined any particular organisation because I saw them all having quite a lot of flaws, in particular the sectarianism and dogmatism of many left groups was a complete turn-off, and I knew that wouldn't work. I thought these groups, they're trying to have a rehash of the... Russian Revolution in Britain or Australia or United States, that isn't going to work. You have to make a revolution according to your own historic and cultural circumstances. Because I think we have many young listeners who won't be aware of any that any of these groups existed historically. So could you name some of the groups that were like interesting around your formative years? Well, there weren't any groups that I really identified with. You know, I was I was highly critical of all of them really. You know, I I. I saw the Labour Party as being a reformist, welfare state, you know, organisation. Um, the Labour Party wasn't really about transforming society. It was about, you know, improving wages and conditions, improving social security, you know, good things, but not about fundamentally changing society. No serious commitment to shift the balance of wealth and power. There are all these different further left groups, like the Communist Party of Great Britain, International Marxist Group, the International Socialist, later became the Socialist Workers' Party. But they all had their flaws, among which often was a very poor record on women's rights and LGBT plus rights. How has gay and feminist activism changed from your own formative experiences? I just ploughed my own sort of independent, radical, socialist vision with a, a small circle of friends but none of us were in any party or organisation. You know, we supported broad-based campaigns, but we didn't really see any organisation that had the kind of vision for how to make a better society Mm -hmm. in a practical, sensible way. Mm -hmm. Um, So you mentioned, interestingly, I think you mentioned that you were inspired by uh, struggles for recognition of black civil rights movement, and you saw that there was an opportunity there for marginalised gay people, what would it mean for the left to pursue that struggle through a discontent, i.e. black civil rights or gay rights, this kind of thing? Well, the interesting thing is that my support for these different struggles, I saw them as all connected, and I saw the unity and solidarity between different marginalised communities as having the potential to build something bigger, stronger and more effective. So whereas most of the left disparage sort of uh, women's rights or LGBT rights. They saw them as, quote, a diversion from the class struggle. They saw them as bourgeois politics. I saw them as a critique of mainstream society, which, if all these different groups could work together, could create, you know, a, a quite strong, powerful movement. And so the kind of LGBT politics I was talking about and thinking about and arguing for in those days was not about merely legal reform. In fact, the word equality never passed my lips. Like others in the Gay Liberation Front in London in the early 1970s, 
our objective was not to reform the system, but to fundamentally transform it. So we had a very strong, powerful critique of straight supremacism and the whole wider society. And that led me and others in the Gay Liberation Front to very much ally with the Women's Liberation Movement, the Black Liberation Movement, uh, the Irish Liberation Movement, and of course, uh, the Works Liberation Movement. Often that solidarity was not reciprocated. So I can remember the big protest uh, against the Industrial Relations Act pushed through by the Conservative government in the early 1970s, which was to try and strangle trade unions. Um, the Gay Liberation Front went there in solidarity and we, the members were abused by many trade unionists. Back in those days, except perhaps the international Marxist group, none of the radical left groups supported LGBT rights. Um, the prevailing view was that homosexuality was a product of degenerate capitalism, that we were undermining the struggle against the socialism by raising non-class issues. How could the struggle for LGBT or LGBT plus rights lead to a radical reconstitution of, of the left? Well, of course, there are many people on the left who have traditionally said that personal politics has nothing to do with socialism. Now, of course, many people would argue something quite different. First of all, um, there's already a, quite a body of evidence that LGBT plus people, because of their experience of oppression, tend to be more liberal minded, um, more open to sympathy and support for women, black people and others who are also victimised. Now, many people eventually came into radical politics through their experiences as a discriminated or victimised black person, woman, gay person and so on. But of course, equally, there's no automatic likelihood that just because you are victimised because of your sexuality, race or gender, that you will become someone who wants to have a critique of the whole society. In fact, for most people, they are content to have equal rights within the status quo. So thinking about the status quo and questions that came up on our panel that we hosted and um, with the two speakers that we had on the panel, one of them who's affiliated with the AWL in the UK and he's written like extensively on trans rights. Our other speaker, sorry, was an artist um, and she also runs like a radical strip club for queers and the AWL affiliate took up this position of he was kind of getting behind Corbyn and he was kind of, we need more statism, we need more welfare on a road to a radical reconstitution of the left. And our other panellist, she opened with saying the personal is political and she runs this, this strip club, obviously, and it's like a performative aspect or there's something radical in taking part in this, I might be. And so there's two positions there, like the personal is political and the kind of we need more statism. Um, you mentioned earlier on in our talk that Labour isn't the left. Um, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, Labour is the left, but it's not a transformative left. Although there are elements of the Corbyn-McDonnell agenda mm -hmm. that are moving in that direction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Would further intervention of the welfare state be an obstacle to the left? Or I well, think you kind of touched on this and I just I wanted to put like your generation in kind of relief against my generation who have mm. a very different attitude mm. and have in the past few years really just kind of got stuck behind Corbyn. Well, of course, if you're faced with a choice between Corbyn and Johnson, <laughs> it's a no-brainer. Of course, Corbyn, whatever criticisms you may have, and I have quite a few criticisms of Jeremy, although I've known him for many years and I respect him greatly. But nevertheless, <laughs> you know, clearly, when it comes to an electoral choice, it's Corbyn hands down. But most of his programme is what I call welfare statism. Improving workers' wages and conditions, holding down rents and, you know, building more affordable homes. It's very much about a state vision of improving people's living conditions, but not really an agenda for transforming society to change the fundamental levers of power and wealth. Now, I was involved in John McDonald's seminars, you know, more than 10 years ago, where we did discuss ideas about how we could move towards a more transformative politics. 
not full socialism, but in that direction, more in that direction. So the idea of having worker and consumer directors by law on the boards of companies and public institutions like the NHS to give employees a real meaningful say. I'm not talking about one or two token, I'm talking about you know a third to a half uh, of worker directors and consumer directors. That does go in that direction. The same with the idea which John McDonald's taken up is the idea of companies being required to hand over a proportion of shares each year to employee-controlled wage earner funds, or whatever you want to call them. The idea borrowed from the Swedish economist Rudolf Meidner in the 1970s. Now, those are mechanisms or policies that are looking at ways in which the structure of capitalism can be changed. Probably not far enough, but certainly within the framework of what is possible in the here and now, I think quite, quite progressive. How has gay and feminist activism changed from your own formative experiences to today? Well, certainly when I was a teenager, feminist and LGBT plus politics were much more grounded in the idea of social transformation rather than mere equal rights within what currently exists. We had a staunch critique of society as it was and set out a vision of what society could be. So not just ending discrimination, but going much more than that, you know, creating uh, a society where feminism or LGBT rights were embedded in the very structures and power within society. And also this idea of building alliances with other marginalised communities on the basis that unity is strength. Together we are stronger and more effective. I think a lot of that has been lost. So now the predominant LGBT plus agenda is simply about equal rights. The bourgeois revolutions of the 18th century, which were once an important touchstone for the left, posed the possibility of human emancipation in new ways beyond the fixed forms of traditional civilization, i.e. the caste system. The emancipation of women and sexual liberation emerged as part of that social and political transformation. Um, how do you relate to the deeper history of the struggle for freedom? Does it have any relevance to debates today? Well, of course, in my early days, I used to dismiss liberalism and the bourgeois enlightenment as, um, you know, I used to dismiss it. But now I would see that, you know, the enlightenment and other, you know, liberal values, they're not the end of the story, but they're part of the story and they're part of the process. And we need to, like, bring those people with us. Whereas many of my left colleagues in my teens and early 20s would just dismiss liberals and, you know, the Enlightenment as just bourgeois history and bourgeois nonsense and uh, reformism. I think that in many ways, rather than disparage democracy, which is a fraud, which some people on the left do, I think we need to embrace it, but point out its flaws. And of course, you know, we have a, a semblance of political democracy, even though, of course, you know, with the current voting system, the first past the post, we have skewed results where in Britain, no governing party has ever won a majority of the public vote since 1931, which is truly outrageous. We've just got one minority-supported government after another. But leaving that aside, it's the economic sphere where we really have a huge uh, a democratic deficit. So I've often argued that the task of socialism is to enhance and improve political democracy but really, most importantly, to extend it into economic democracy. What's the difference between political and economic democracy? How would you explain the difference? When it comes to political democracy, it is one person, one vote. In the economic system, a handful of very rich and powerful people have all the votes. And the vast majority of people who work in public and private enterprises have no votes at all. So quite clearly, there's a disjunction between the political and economic systems. And what I'm saying is, you know, democracy is such a strong idea. It's part of our culture. You can't make fundamental change by going against the culture. Our task is to argue for 
democracy to be introduced into the economic realm. Now, one way of doing this is by having worker and consumer representatives on the boards of private companies and public institutions. Astonishingly, back in the 1970s, during the reign of Prime Minister James Callaghan, he commissioned a report by Lord Bullock on industrial democracy, which proposed that every private company with more than 50 employees would have to have on its management board 50% employee representatives. I was flabbergasted that this report would come out with something so radical. Mm -hmm. And I was even more flabbergasted when the trade unions on the left rejected it. Now, why did, why it, did they re reject it? This is an obvious question. Because uh, they, it wasn't good enough for their... They thought it was corporatism, drawing workers into the capitalist system. But hang on, together with other reforms, it wouldn't have really been the traditional capitalist system anymore. It would have been fundamentally changed. It would have been a huge extension of the balance of power from capital to labour. Mm -hmm. It would have represented a huge constraint mm -hmm. on the power of capital. After the failed revolutions of 1848 and the Paris Commune, for instance, Marx recognised the need for the dictatorship of the proletariat. That would be what was required to radically transform society, as opposed to there being kind of like more workers on given positions on boards. How would you square that with Marx's assessment? Workers and consumers on the boards is only part of the equation. The other idea is the Rudolf Meidner model, the Swedish economist, whereby companies were required to give a certain percentage of shares over to employee-controlled funds. Then there are other ideas funding the turning of enterprises into worker cooperatives. There's no one single answer. I recoil from Marx's idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat. I know what he's trying to say, he means like workers in power. Mm. But when you use that term dictatorship, you know, the public are never going to support you. You have to have a politics and phrase it in a way that people can relate to and that people can feel safe and secure with. There's jargon that's off-putting and it's not actually a practical policy. Mm -hmm. Of course, the dictatorship of the proletariat was taken up in terms of language in Russia in Lenin's moment um, and called for in, in Germany by someone like Luxembourg. Um, before the German Revolution failed. Yeah, but, you know, how did it end up, you know? I mean, the great tragedy is there's been virtually no successful communist or socialist revolution anywhere. Mm -hmm. It hasn't descended into dictatorship and tyranny. So in its rejection of the conservatism of the old left, i.e. official communism or Stalinism, the new left in the 1960s, uh, rallied against the traditional nuclear family and related forms of sexuality. What do we mean by liberated sexuality? Well, in a way, the 1960s sexual liberation movement really sort of harked back, without acknowledgement, <laughs> to the late 19th century, people like Edward Carpenter, who had a socialism which was both political and economic, but also personal and was very strong on things like women's rights, LGBT rights, uh, animal rights, and so on. It was a more ethically infused socialism, and a socialism that sought to make a new society which acknowledged the individual. Mm -hmm. You're saying the 60s is maybe like a repeat of a previous history where these radical ideas were already being taken up, and then I guess our moment is kind of inheriting the 60s, but maybe unconsciously. I think different waves of radical leftism often consciously or unconsciously repeat or build upon what had perhaps been done a century earlier. So if you look at a lot of the new social movements today, you open up the writings of the socialist Edward Carpenter in the late 19th century and you see all those ideas there. And I think that what often happens is you have people who are outliers who, and, and perhaps actually Edward Carpenter gathered around him quite a, a sizable social circle of, of radical leftists. But then with the rise of the Labour Party and the rise of economism within the Labour Party and welfare statism, 
their more broad, encompassing vision got sidelined. And then it sort of got rediscovered by the new left in the 1960s. And then is again being rediscovered today. The question is, <laughs> when will we stop rediscovering it and actually do it? I think certainly today we have made much greater progress than any of the earlier incarnations. How would you define progress for the left? Well, I think the consciousness around women's rights, for example, the Me Too movement, the awareness about trans issues today, it's, that is qualitatively more substantive than anything in the 60s or the 19th century. When would you put like traditional capitalist society where in history? Well, even up probably up to the 1960s, that traditional society has begun to change, not because capitalism or its apologists have suddenly had enlightenment, but because of the social movements that have happened since then, which has forced changes. Many people used to say there can be no women's liberation without socialism. Well, I never really believed that. Of course, traditional capitalist society was misogynistic and denied women equal rights. But there's no automatic rule that socialism equals women's liberation. Some socialist communist societies did radically improve women's rights. That's true. But many didn't. And often those improvements were in the frame of actually making them just <laughs> more amenable workers and consumers. And when it comes to LGBT plus rights, you know, undoubtedly it's within late capitalist society that LGBT plus people have achieved their greatest gains. Mm -hmm. My final question, what should the left's position be with regard to the state and the private lives of individuals? I think the left's position should be basically live and let live that can enable and empower people to lead fulfilled lives. If you look at, say, capitalist society today, we have a fair degree of a right to privacy, a right to individual freedom. These are also elements that would be part of a socialist society. You know, even Lenin and others recognised that within their new Russian communist society, there were still large elements of capitalist ideology and structure. So in fact, <laughs> the communists took over lots of the ideas of Henry Ford and others about, you know, factory production. And in fact, <laughs> they, they embraced a capitalist style regimentation of workforces in order to industrialize Russia or the Soviet Union as it became. So I would see that within capitalist societies today, we have some of the seeds of a socialist society like better rights for women or gay people or ethnic minorities. So you might argue that, you know, we are in the process already of transitioning to a social society, albeit it's painfully slow and taking a bloody long time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One more thing to push you on. So the left historically, or the great leftist historically, Marx and Lenin, for instance, realised that democracy was like a symptom of the crisis of bourgeois society and pointed beyond itself. So what does democracy mean for the left? I think that democracy is part and parcel of socialism. The issue is that bourgeois society sees democracy only in political terms, whereas socialists see it also in economic and cultural terms. So to me, socialism is about not denying democracy, but extending it. Thank you very much for joining us, Peter, and it's been great speaking with you. Okay, well, thank you, and um, <laughs> forgive my rambling ideas. No, I think it, I think it was great. update on the election, like update on Brexit slash election countdown, because that's what it's become. I think the first thing to introduce is the situation with Brexit mm -hmm. before really getting into the rest of the election proper. 
um, which is that Brexit has been delayed ostensibly to January the 30th, 2020. And going into this election, Boris Johnson is campaigning essentially to win a majority to put through his Brexit deal, which he negotiated with the European Union. And the Labour Party is campaigning to hold a second referendum Mm -hmm. in which it will present a deal which it claims that it's going to negotiate with the European Union within the first six months of its term in office if it's elected with a majority, which is unlikely, or remain. Mm -hmm. And there have been big questions about, you know, which senior Labour members uh, have said which way they, they would vote in that hypothetical second referendum. Many leading figures, including one of the heroes of the left, John McDonnell, have said that they would actually vote for Remain. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jeremy Corbyn himself has been unwilling to give a final answer on that question. What's the next couple of months going to look like here in terms of... Uh... Well, the election will be on the 12th of December. You know, obviously, it does all depend on the result. Mm-hmm. I think anything other than a conservative majority will result in a further extension. Mm-hmm. Okay. Unless the Liberal Democrats win a majority, which it's not going to happen. Which is not going to happen, but they would they would immediately revoke Article Fifty and just stop the whole process. Mm-hmm. So the real question is: Can Labour gain a majority? Yes, or a minority government supported by call a confidence and supply arrangement where other smaller parties will agree to vote for Labour's bills in Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be the SNP. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the complication there is that the SNP want a second referendum on Scottish independence mm-hmm. and you know would try and kind of hold Labour's feet to the fire over an agreement over that. And again, there have been mixed messages from the Labour camp. Mm-hmm. So now we're then looking forward to the election. And it seems like there's, there's kind of an exhaustion like among people on the left, uh, or at least among our members, with talking about the election. Is the topic exhausted? Or is it just that it doesn't give us anything more to discuss? Are we stuck in this conversation about Brexit? Um, well, I would say I think much of the left, including the, the Labour Party, is really pushing investment in social care and in like a green economy and green infrastructure and that's kind of taken the forefront of their attention so that's what i would say rather than brexit taking up the conversation it's mainly about labor's economic policies mm-hmm. labor wants to avoid talking about brexit because they have such an inconclusive position on the major question so how can we make this uh, conversation about the election productive for platypus because that's sort of mm. there seems to be an exhaustion with the topic uh, in the organization and so this is even though we want to be done with the topic it's clearly happening right now and so what do we do with it well at, at least from the conversations I've had with a couple of platypus members most people here like recognize that labor isn't like a, a socialist party at all and kind of because of that there's like a lack of a socialist analysis of brexit generally, with the exception of like maybe very small like sectarian voices that have like a bit more of a traditional leftist pure skeptic position. At this point, it feels like in terms of like personal voting preferences or attitudes towards labor or even the conservatives or the Brexit party, it's policy rather than politics. Mm -hmm. The Tories are no longer running on this like uh, austerity program, right? And so... (laughs) the big spending of uh, the Labour Party towards social services doesn't have the same kind of impact. Um, like, what are the policies that you think that, yeah, resonate with people, that'll take them to the polls? But the, or at least for, like, more of, like, the cosmopolitan millennial left in the UK, the diplomatic section of the Labour Manifesto was mm-hmm. quite exciting because it was, like, anti-imperialist. It was a new internationalism was the section of the manifesto they released. A lot of it included recognizing like previous colonial settlements, especially with like, a couple mm-hmm. of disputes over like islands. So like allowing some populations or like native populations to return or set up like a new developmental office to help ex-colonies. So at least like when we were talking to like a couple of friends of ours, that was the main like, oh, they're like now addressing the UK's imperialist past. That's really interesting because I just read um, 
Lindsay German of Counterfire's briefing. And um, her, you know, Labour manifesto came out yesterday and her gripe was foreign policy. So really on the substantial matters that Corbyn opposes NATO and opposes Trident, he has backtracked in every way. From a traditional, you know, Labour left position, it's a total capitulation on foreign policy. But there are these more gestural and, frankly, materially meaningless propositions which do appeal to large parts of Labour's millennial kind of activist base. The on-trend anti-imperialism. The on-trend anti-imperialism, which is actually going to disappoint and betray older millennial Gen X people who went through the anti-war movement and remember Corbyn as the chair of the Stop the War Coalition, Mm -hmm. as the person who was going to scrap Trident, Mm -hmm. which is the the nuclear weapons system. I think this goes back to the question of exhaustion, because I was thinking, well, what is it that people are actually exhausted with? Mm -hmm. And I think it's this question of so-called millennial socialism, Mm. Um, that really does reduce everything to a matter of tactics and policy and wants to avoid all deeper questions that go back beyond, you know, 1945 would be a long way back for them to think. Mm -hmm. Um, We're sitting in this room with a nice Beatrice Webb quote on the wall. Reform will not be brought about by shouting. What is needed is hard thinking. Mm. Well, you know, I certainly empathise with that sentiment in some way, but I think the left, there's been a kind of, an absence of um, international foreign policy questions on the left. There's been this kind of uh, focus on domestic policy. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see whether there is a return of those kinds of issues on the left, partly out of discontents with Labour, mm-hmm. if it turns out that they backtrack, particularly on things like freedom of movement, which is another policy that kind of appeals to lots of younger people of course labor don't have a freedom of movement policy mm-hmm. they have a immigration policy and and they always have so what about the working class and its connection to the labor party like do you think that people that will go to the voting polls that are under 30 today will have any way of assessing whether or not the labor party is actually for labor i think at this point it's more like anti-tory Again, from the people that I'm talking to that that are more like working class or have gone through more like non-university routes, let's say, for example, and not part of like the intellectual millennial left. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is just like, I don't, I don't have any job security. There's like, we want to reinvest in the welfare state, anti-austerity. Um, and it's really about like the swing. Is the Lib Dems more likely to kick out the Tories or is it Labour? Mm-hmm. Are you going to vote? I can't vote. You can't vote? No. So I'm a resident of the UK. Where are you from? I'm Chilean-American. Can you vote in America? I can. Will you? Yeah. Can I ask who you're voting for? LB Sanders. Yeah. Okay. Are you voting, Dom? I I think I will be voting, yes. Yeah. Who are you voting for? That will be for Labour. Why? Maybe just out of moralistic habit, I guess. I I think investment in the economy is going to be a good thing. I separate it from my activity in Platypus. Um, Insofar as I'm trying to engage with and critique the left, I keep that separate because I don't think it's a useful thing to kind of model. Can you explain that you keep it separate in terms of a critique of the left with your political act of voting? I suppose since I have been at the LSE and since I've come to London, I've kind of compartmentalised like my private um, voting habits for a Labour Party um, because I, I like moralistically agree with the welfare state and agree with social welfare policies. But I keep that separate from historical socialism and a consciousness of history. Does that make sense? I'm curious is... about this. I mean, the idea of having this historical consciousness is so that it can sort of activate your judgment in the present. So when you say morally, what do you mean? Like, I morally agree with the welfare state. Um, in the sense that I think welfare policies will be good for a huge amount of people in the country. Mm-hmm. I think I should exercise my democratic right to help them. But I, I guess I kind of compartmentalise that behaviour from activity and part of us. Will you vote, Rory? Um, I live in the safest Labour seat in London, so it's um, it's like a 70% or something majority. I think I'll sit this one out anyway. You'll um, sit this one out? Yeah. 
one of the things I guess that we cultivate in Platypus is this, um, circumspection and even like coldness towards mainstream politics. Mm-hmm. It's interesting kind of thinking about um, where you're coming from, Dom, with like having this, um, I, don't, I don't want to say kind of like in, in two minds thing, because Cognitive that's... dissonance. <laughs> yeah, I, su- I suppose Cognitive so. Dissonance. I suppose so. And, you know, like everyone has like cognitive dissonance anyway. Mm-hmm. Like we all do um, mm-hmm. strange things which we don't understand. So, which is like unavoidable. I just kind of don't feel compelled to vote for the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I think I think if you're going to vote for someone, it, it should be um, you should be prepared to take responsibility for your vote, even if it's not in a kind of properly political sense. Do you want a second referendum, Dom? Yes, I would say yeah. Mm-hmm. Why? I suppose I don't see any other way out of this issue, as it goes. Mm. Could have a Tory majority, or or do you think that that would only exacerbate? kind of extension of Brexit going on into the future. But I guess one position is that Brexit will never be solved. Yeah, um, right, which seems to be And that the only concerned. way out is, is, to rem- is to in fact remain, which is why people would support a second referendum. And I guess, you know, there is something to that, which is it certainly is the correct conclusion from the experience of the past three years in a certain sense. But I think what we're going to experience with this election, perhaps much more than the last one, is that the shape of, you know, what seems like interminable instability right now will actually begin to take form as a new normal, mm-hmm. uh, a new centre, post-neoliberalism, post-neoliberal politics. The fault lines of the electoral map will kind of be reconfirmed People are like, okay, in 2017, Tories made inroads here, Labour made inroads here, but like, will it all go back? Or is this a real change? Or how deep does it go? Will it be disrupted by the Brexit party and the Lib Dems? How quickly will they fall to the wayside? And so I think, you know, there is this sense of, you know, waiting with bated breath to actually see that it's not going to be the end of the world and and Brexit won't be this interminable process. Mm there'll be some kind of political resolution. One other thing I wanted mm-hmm. to mention, younger people who are thinking of voting um, Labour on this issue of the working class and where the working class are voting are, I hate to say it, but memes, which display a kind of a sentiment of working class people who vote Tory as traitors. But it's like virulent. It's like these people are moronic, idiotic... I'm assuming that these people who are sharing these memes are trying to get a better majority for Labour. So it's like it appears completely counterintuitive mm-hmm. to how a normal like Labour activist would act. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. really common. Maybe expresses some truth about the party actually. You know, like when people used to call the Trump voters the deplorables. And if the Tories do win a majority, and if they do do so by winning even one or two significant kind of Labour swing seats, there will be a certain degree of soul-searching on the left about this phenomenon of working-class Tories. Mm -hmm. And that question has a long history on the kind of Labour left. Uh, An article in the first ever issue of the New Left Review, a few months after Labour lost the 1959 general election, which tries to explain this, and it's called The Deference Voter mm. by a guy called Ralph Samuel. And it tries to explain the phenomenon as people deferring to their betters, mm. um, that working-class people vote Tory because they have this belief that the wealthy upper class should rule. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a famous British TV sketch from the 60s uh, called Class, where three men stand in a row upper class, middle class and lower class and they're arranged in height and the working class man says you know, I look up to him but I look up to him even more I think it's a really bad explanation of working class Toryism and I wonder what kinds of historical precedents the left is going to reach for to try to explain that phenomenon in the aftermath of this election Mm -hmm. up until now since the Brexit vote it's reached mostly for the explanation of racism Mm -hmm. um, which is 
equally unsatisfactory, if not more so. So what do we do with this topic? It seems like it's going to be around for a while, whether we like it or not. And so, you know, you talked about this question of the return to the international context of the return to the sort of like the move outside from the domestic. But how do we get people to think about this not simply as a moral choice? This seems to be a way of skirting the political question of saying, well, I, I feel compelled. I mean, it's sort of the return to a kind of uh, common sense liberalism. I feel compelled to stand against, you know, the bad leaders in society and I want people to have a good life. And as far as the short term is concerned, these policies appear to me to be better for most people. And there's a way that that's a retreat actually from long-term thinking about politics and certainly about socialism. How do we break through that framework? Because it's actually a way of not asking some really difficult questions about politics, isn't it? Well, what are the difficult questions you're thinking of? that maybe there isn't a political choice today. Maybe the supporting these parties is a way of um, bolstering an obstacle, actually, to just entrench, like, obstacles. And maybe, like, the real kind of existential crisis of seeing that there is no political leadership present that will advance uh, the interests of socialism in the long run. Well, I think that's our position anyway. There is no socialist party politics without an organized socialist party. And what's interesting about the dissonance of the left in, in the UK, how it's kind of like splintered it. So there's like a lot of different positions that people are taking in relation to Brexit, in relation to labor. Mm-hmm. And that incoherence is like very telling of what is missing. I know, I don't want to put Dom on the spot, but I would have never thought the compartmentalization sort of gets me. Like, I don't understand that bit because... To me, like the existential crisis of the left today, the fact that there isn't like a political party that I can imagine represents and advances the possibility of socialism can appear quite hopeless. And yet, like we have platypus and we have this sort of capacity to educate people so that in the long run, we could create a social base for something like a socialist party or whatever that might look like. But the idea that your education in platypus can be sort of put away and then that you can be a political actor in the world and still support a political party that exists. I'm trying to understand mm-hmm. how that happens. When I mean compartmentalize, I, I kind of see my political activity actually is more significant in engaging with the left. I see my voting habits as private in that sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I, mm-hmm. I see what I do in Platypus as actually more political. Mm-hmm. I think there does need to be a separation of ideas. Often when we've talked to um, left-wing labor activists, one example comes to mind is, is the AWL. We, we went up to their summer camp last year and you know we were criticizing their role in supporting the Labour Party mm-hmm. from the standpoint of historical Marxism. Mm-hmm. And their response was, well, do you really think it makes such a difference that like I'll go into the voting booth and just lose my head, that I can't just go and vote Labour mm-hmm. and uh, then still like, no, I'm a socialist. The problem is not if they go into the voting booth and vote for Labour. The problem is that they go around politicising people to the idea of socialism on the basis of the Labour Party. Right. Right, it's the historical ideas that are abused in that process. Mm-hmm. That question is of raising those historical ideas is going to be a challenge. Yeah, I mean, the retreat to common sense liberalism, I guess that's the part that I'm taking what you said, Dom, as a kind of expression of a symptom that I think that a lot of people do act on this kind of, their return to their basic common sense liberal ideas. But I wonder how we can deal with that, like in the long run, not not by like telling members to vote for certain parties or not telling our members to vote for certain parties. But if that is also an obstacle that we're very aware of, because it even happens with members in our organization, then how do we intervene at the level that we have these like millennial folks who can just sort of square the circle and say, well, I do know better and I don't I know that these parties don't stand for socialism. And yet I'm compelled to support them. I, I take your point, Ephraim. Like, I think that the problem with these organizations like the AWL is that they're selling socialism, so to speak, to be vulgar about it, on the basis that they're going to give their vote to Jeremy Corbyn. And that's rotten. And you're miseducating people. Uh, there seems to be a kind of common sense position that takes people to the voting booth and say, well, listen, I, I know better. And yet 
this choice exists and this is all I have. And I'm not sure what to do with that because it's a recurring problem. This is actually probably the first time this problem has been posed to me seriously because in putting my biggest chunk of my political thought in platypus, separating that from labor throughout my time at university, it's actually been um, kind of brought up only recently. And I, the experience over the last few days of someone read out their manifesto to me and I could feel in myself like, oh, this is genuinely new. This is, this is, this is like, I haven't seen policies like this in a very long time. Um, throughout my entire like political life, I haven't seen them. And I felt the inertia in my head and I, I had to think about it for quite a while. So I have been actually trying to think through what is, how am I going to respond to this in platypus? The problem I think that you were getting at as well is the left's kind of subculturalism in a sense. So the CPGB, the Communist Party of Great Britain, who published The Weekly Worker, had this phrase that they sometimes wheel out, which is auto-laborism, right? So like automatic laborism. Mm -hmm. It's just a default way if you're on the left. Even if mm -hmm. you're in one of the left groups that kind of like anti-labor party and says don't vote labor, it's still within the kind mm -hmm. of orbit of that subculture, mm -hmm. even if you're just trying to like wind other people up or something. That kind of exerts a real kind of um, gravitational pull on people, um, which is especially risky with something like platypus because we go out and like talk to these people. And so it kind of engenders a certain ambivalence, a kind of like push-pull, mm -hmm. um, revulsion, attraction thing. I think the thing to hold on to with platypus is precisely the ambivalence. Mm -hmm. So not to give in to either a kind of vulgar anti-laborism or just laborism. That has been my experience anyway. Like actually trying to hold on to and like clarify a certain yeah, or how you about, put it, about politics in general yeah. as well. Right? Or how you put it earlier, the sort of cognitive dissonance, right? That we don't expect our members not to have these moments of cognitive dissonance. The question is, could we turn it into a productive moment of a reflection? Moment. Yeah, a critical yeah. moment, right? but that we're actually dealing with the way that we as political actors in the world have to cope with these decisions instead of sort of ignoring them. One thing to identify is, well, what are we really dealing with here is history. <laughs> the history of the British left is the capitulation to the Labour Party and to, you know, the right-wing management of, of capitalism. And when people talk about auto-laborism, we need to think about, okay, well, how is auto-laborism... Uh, re-articulated through changes in capitalism and changes on the left which go along with that. How the kind of auto-laborism that we experience now is actually really coming from the experience of 1997. Mm -hmm. It's not the kind of auto-laborism of, well, my father worked in the mine and voted for labor and my grandfather worked in the mine and voted for labor and I will too. Mm -hmm. It's actually an inherited Blairism that has a very prominent role in the Corbyn left. Mm -hmm. A lot of the rhetoric is very similar, and for the many, not the few, was, was Blair's slogan. Platypus pays very close attention to brushing history against the grain and making regression palpable, and thinking about changes on the left in relationship to changes in capitalism, and kind of opening up, okay, how is this articulated in different ways mm -hmm. over time? That's the history that we that we have to kind of work through. Mm -hmm. It's tricky because the Labour Party does have its finger on the pulse on sort of trendy anti-imperialist sort of topics. And so there's a crafty or well-done cover-up or a way of skirting the Blairism by presenting itself as an anti-imperialist party. Well, I mean, that there's a lot to say there. Obviously, there's a lot of history to unpack in, in terms of the British New Left and its experience down until... Blair, but also the way in which Blair's big sin was the Iraq war mm -hmm. for left Labourites who would have supported him anyway. And that what Corbyn, particularly because of his, you know, role during that moment in history with the Stop the War Coalition represents is in some senses the redemption of, you know, the Blairism that they always wanted but never had. Cheer. They've been waiting for me. <laughs> what the fuck? What the fuck? Feel the morning on my face. Ain't a pill that I didn't take. Just a lifetime, cause it's been a long day. Cause I'm 
This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Platypus is an international membership-based group that organizes reading groups, public fora, research and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Yeah, talk to me, about to make a big deal, uproar, and I'm in for the kill, love roar. Looking like a meal, contour, fuck it sit until we can't feel no more. And I smoke something that gon' knock me out. But somehow this body just won't stay down, down, let's down. Quiet. Feel the morning on my face. Ain't a pill that I didn't take. Just a lifetime, cause it's been a Cause I'm asleep when I'm Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about, or get involved with Platypus, and to access the entire back catalog of The Platypus Review, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org.